It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. With Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, October 6, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you for listening every day. We are growing together here at the show. We are grateful for that. And thanks to all of you. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. The show airs live 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, and we recommend listening live if you can. If not, podcast on demand, free of charge. I'll be joining Shannon Bream tonight on Fox News at night, midnight Eastern time. I was on special report last night. Schedules will be on special report again tomorrow night. So a busy TV week for me. Here on the radio, we've got a lot coming your way. Charlie Hurt later this hour. Glenn Youngkin, Republican running for governor in Virginia. Poll today showing that race tied. Glenn Youngkin is really hammering Democrat Terry McAuliffe on education. We'll talk to him about that at the top of the next hour. Jessica Tarloff, our friend, a Democrat, she'll be here next hour as well. We will also check in with Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics, a whole raft of just terrible polling numbers for President Biden and the Democratic Party. We will break all of those numbers down. Not a great spot for the Democrats right now. Tom Bevan has those numbers. Also, there's a brand new show on Fox Business Network. It's sort of like a documentary style show about some brothers who are mining for gold in Montana. It's actually really interesting. We will introduce you to them at the very end of the show during our home stretch. So we are absolutely packed today. Fox News alert as we begin here. Let's bring you stats. 43.9 million confirmed cases of COVID in the United States, all in. That number is a low ball. The death toll is up 705,000. 394 now. That is the death toll of Americans with or of COVID during the pandemic. Although those numbers on cases, deaths, hospitalizations, thank goodness, all down double digits in terms of percentages within the last two weeks. The Dow currently is down slightly, down 17 points, trading right now at 34,297, a rare day of sort of stability in Wall Street or on Wall Street in the markets today after a lot of volatility. But there's still time, less than an hour to go before the closing bell. I want to bring you another Fox News alert with some news just breaking here in the last couple of minutes. Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the U.S. Senate, has reportedly offered Democrats a few different options for a deal on the debt ceiling where he's not backing off of his demand that Democrats do this on their own through reconciliation, but he wants to buy them a little bit more time to do it because they keep using this excuse, oh, we don't have time, it's all so rushed. Well, the Republicans have given them months. Nevertheless, the report is McConnell has come to Schumer and said, either we can do a short debt ceiling increase into December, which gives you more time to get this done, or we will expedite the process of reconciliation, but it's going to have to be just you guys and your party. Some Democrats are concerned about that. We can maybe get into more of those details a bit later on. But I wanted to bring you that quick development because the vote that was planned on the debt ceiling 
and on the 60-vote threshold, so a closure vote is what they call it, really a test vote, that was anticipated for this afternoon or evening. It has now been postponed, and they are huddling. I think it was very clear that the Republicans were going to stand together and reject this and put the ball back into Democrats' court, and the Democrats were divided over what to do. And McConnell has given them a brief, temporary lifeline. We'll see if they take it or if they decide to double down on intransigence again. So we'll keep an eye on that. As we begin the show today, I want to play for you some sound from an interview that Brett Baer did last night on Special Report with Rodney Scott, who was until recently the chief of the Border Patrol. It was wide-ranging. I thought that there were, because I was on the panel last night, as I mentioned, and I was watching some of the interview with Molly Hemingway, in the green room and we were looking at each other. I mean, some of the revelations from Rodney Scott were, I think very significant. I was planning on doing a monologue about immigration anyway today, because there are new details. I know our political press is talking about basically everything, but even though the latest Quinnipiac poll has president Biden approaching 20% approval on the border and immigration, maybe that's why, The Democrats and their press friends don't want to talk about it, but the crisis continues unabated. It is getting worse. We told you NBC News reported they were thinking up to 400,000 people might be encountered at the border this month, double what it was in July and August, which was already a two decade high. Foreign governments continue to warn, I saw now Colombia is the latest, that thousands of illegal immigrants are on their way to America, passing through these countries, headed for our southern border with the belief, as we told you yesterday, as they just tell journalists straight up, the belief that they will be allowed in. And unfortunately, that belief is pretty well founded under President Biden and this administration and the Democratic Party. They are not enforcing the border in any sort of meaningful way, and it is deepening a terrible crisis. So let's get to some of this sound, some of this audio, starting with this. It's sort of a a big picture look at what's happening and why this is happening. It's not rocket science. I know the White House keeps trying to deflect and lie and obfuscate about root causes and about seasonality, that has all been completely refuted by reality. And Rodney Scott in Cut 9 lays it out. The message goes out, and then instead of having a couple of hundred encounters a day, we quickly went up to about 6,000 encounters a day. Uh, the little bit of the misleading messaging in the, in the public today, too, is they think this is just Mexico or South America. Uh, Border Patrol caught, over, uh, caught people from 150 different countries coming through Mexico into the United States this last year before I retired. 150 countries. 150 countries. That's where some of these illegal immigrants are coming from to our southern border because that's the place to get in. This also just exemplifies and spotlights the folly of the root causes argument. Oh, we've got to help the situation on the ground in Guatemala. Okay. What about the other 149 countries? Rodney Scott goes on and says, this is exactly what the cartels and criminal groups want. 
a lot of this is actually strategic in terms of distracting our resources, distracting our personnel. Listen to cut 10. It's basically just think like football. Basically, they fake a play over here and the real play is going to the left. So when we get distracted with 15 to 20,000 Haitians under a bridge, that resulted in several hundred miles of border having no border patrol agents on it at all. That's where the cartels push the narcotics through, the criminal aliens, people that will not give up. And by the way, the audio is not great of this because it was a speech being given that was recorded. It's on YouTube. But the current person in that position, the chief of Border Patrol, his name is Raul Ortiz, right now under President Biden. And he said exactly the same thing a few months ago. I will read it to you. Quote, you've got to manage these groups, talking about groups of illegal immigrants arriving in the U.S. Why are they doing this? Because the cartels are dictating, he said. They're telling these groups, I want you to cross here. And then what happens is we're going to slide our narcotics through over here. Or maybe aliens who are criminal aliens, we're going to get them through over there. So these huge groups of families and children and migrants, some of them are directed, according to the most recent and the current Border Patrol chiefs, both of them saying the cartels, the traffickers, the criminal elements, they orchestrate this. They choreograph it where there's a big crisis over over here, like in Del Rio, which did get some coverage. And then with all eyes on that situation and a bunch of resources flooded there because it's overwhelming, you have other areas of the border less secure or just not patrolled at all, and that's when they sneak in people that you really don't want in the country. Rodney Scott goes on, this number blows me away. To me, this is the biggest single takeaway of the entire interview because we've talked about this. We know that there are more than 1.2 million border encounters already under President Obama, uh, under President Biden this year. Since February, 1.2 million border encounters with illegal immigrants from Border Patrol and counting. It's probably already significantly higher than that, 1.3, 1.4, and counting. I mean, it's, it's an unfathomable number, honestly. But we always add the caveat, that number does not include the gotaways. People that we detect, our personnel or our technology detects illegal immigrants, but we don't have the wherewithal, the manpower, what have you, to go interdict those people or bring them into custody. So they do successfully get into the country illegally. They call them gotaways in their lingo down at the border, and there have been tens of thousands of them that we know of, let alone the people that we don't know of. I'm sure there are plenty who don't get detected, but that we know of tens of thousands per month. What does that number look like in total this year? Here's the answer. Brace yourself for it. Cut 11. We have over 400,000 documented gotaways, people or incidents where people crossed the border and got away this last year and hundreds of miles of border where we have no idea what took place. That's what mass migration creates. 400,000 gotaways on top of the 1.2 million apprehensions. 400,000 known gotaways this year. We just did the show from KOIL in Omaha, Nebraska, 
last Friday, we are getting close to the entire population of Omaha, Nebraska, illegal immigrant gotaways so far this year with a quarter of the year, three months still left. That blows my mind. So some of the numbers, if you can believe it, that we're getting are low balls. The real numbers and the reality, it's worse. Mr. Scott, the former Border Patrol chief, went on to say that 90 percent of people who do get into the country at some point, one way or another, 90 percent of them do not get deported. He also revealed this is amazing. Actually, listen to this. Cut 15. If you're interested in the wall, building the wall, that, of course, was stopped for political reasons, just like other succeeding policies from the last administration were stopped for political reasons by this president. But as a taxpayer, wait till you hear what's happening. Again, listen here. This is cut 15. We're paying contractors uh, for a while. It was almost five million a day between DOD and DHS. To not. To not build the border wall. There's wait, wait, wait. Five million a day to not build the wall. To not build a wall. Even though they have all the stuff. You can hear there. There are stacks and stacks of border wall. You can hear there. Brett Bayer, our colleague at Fox, just shocked by that. U.S. taxpayers under Biden were paying millions of dollars a day for the wall not to be built because of, I would imagine, existing contracts. In the middle of this crisis, they are so committed to opposing Trump and the wall that they were paying millions of dollars a day for the wall to not be built. While we have 400,000 known gotaways on top of the 1.2 million other illegal immigrants, many of them so-called asylum seekers who do not qualify, directed to one border point, by the cartels so other more dangerous people can get in elsewhere with our people distracted and demoralized, of course, when the president talks about whips and whipping and how they're going to pay, which was a complete lie. Rodney Scott was also asked about that. He said he was dumbfounded by the lies that were told about Border Patrol during that whole controversy. Now, when we come back, I've got a break, but we're getting additional details about who is entering the United States and some detainments that have just happened in the last few days involving people already convicted of serious crimes in the United States who were deported and now they're back. We will get to those details next on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show talking about the border crisis. I don't know why I always feel compelled to say stuff like this, but I do. I am not a big immigration hawk person. It's never been one of my very top issues or animating issues. It just hasn't been. But seeing what is happening down there, watching this disaster of a policy from this administration, I cannot help but cover it a lot because it's outrageous and indefensible. I think I would not be doing my job properly if we were not using this platform to raise awareness and raise alarm bells about what's happening. So as I mentioned, the former Border 
Patrol chief, Rodney Scott, was on special report last night with Brett Baer. He talked about people who are entering the country, taking advantage of the border crisis, cartels, traffickers, gang members, even terrorists. Our colleague Bill Malugin tweeted yesterday a list, a partial list, of people who were detained by Border Patrol in one sector this past weekend. It included a Mexican national convicted of molesting a child in North Carolina, a Guatemalan convicted of sexual abuse in Iowa, a Mexican national convicted of sex offenses in Oakland, California, an MS-13 gang member, and a Gulf cartel member. That's in one sector, in one weekend, and those are the people who were actually caught. Now, when I talk about the lack of, for example, COVID testing or vaccine requirements for illegal immigrants at the border, and I compare that and juxtapose that with people who are coming to the country legally or what's being imposed even on American citizens, I don't do it because I'm saying, oh, look at these immigrants and the disease that they're bringing, right? That's a xenophobic trope. And that's not the point that I'm making. There's a double standard point that I'm making. Similarly here, I'm not saying, oh, look at all these dangerous criminals This is what all immigrants are, all illegal immigrants. No, there's a difference, of course, between legal and illegal immigrants, a very important one that seems to be blurred or almost like inverted by a lot of Democrats. There's also an acknowledgement on my part that the vast majority of illegal immigrants are not violent or dangerous criminals. That doesn't mean that they have a right to be here. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't enforce our laws against them. It doesn't mean that they should be exempt from deportation or other consequences, but we don't have to smear them as criminals either. But there are also, yes, dangerous, violent criminals who come into this country illegally. And in this case, just giving a few examples, people who have come to this country, committed sexual assaults against Americans who have been convicted here, deported, and now they're coming back. And these are the folks who have been actually caught this time. Now, think about that number that we played you in the last segment 400,000 gotaways this year we don't know who those people are they are disproportionately people who did not want to get caught who are taking advantage of the crisis as a distraction that is alarming that is disturbing and that is a real element of this biden border crisis Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. As we continue here, it's Wednesday on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcasts always free. We're very happy to have back here on the program with us Charlie Hurt, opinion editor at The Washington Times, a Fox News contributor. And I sometimes like to refer to him as our senior Joe Biden whisperer here at the show because we get his interpretations of some of the things said by the president. We've got uh, one soundbite here to play for him. Charlie, welcome back. Good to be with you, Guy. So uh, yesterday during the show, we took a little bit of the president speaking live about his 
agenda and these trillions of dollars that the Democrats want to spend. He said that the tax increases and all this stuff would actually help make America more competitive. And people who don't want to spend trillions of dollars on this stuff are, quote, complicit in American decline. Uh, Speaking of decline, he also had this to say, I want you to listen to Cut 17 and give us your in-depth analysis. Listen. When you build a charging station, it's like back in the day when my grandpa worked for the American Oil Company back in the turn of the, in the 1920 in that area. They went from state to state convincing people that they put allowed them to put 20,000 gallons of gasoline under the ground. They didn't want them around. Charlie, your thoughts? As an expert who has covered Joe Biden for 20-plus years now uh, throughout his service, in the United States Senate, as well as vice president and, and now as president, I can tell you, I have no freaking idea what the hell he's talking about right there. OK, uh, so you have failed as the chief senior Biden whisperer here at the Guy Benson show. But I, I also think that that analysis is fair, honestly, because I listened to it several times. Um, I don't know what he's talking about either. But to the point that I mentioned before that, Charlie, He's trying to sell this plan. I know we are told that the plan is popular, and yet his approval rating continues to go down and down and down, and now he's framing it, Mr. Unity, he's framing it as if you're against this stuff, then you're in favor of American decline. That's quite a take. Yeah, it really is, especially when you consider the fact that we're getting lectures from Joe Biden and Democrats right now about fiscal responsibility. We're talking about a time right now where we're already staring at $28 trillion in debt that these people have placed on our children and grandchildren's heads that will never be paid off in any of our lifetimes. And, uh, and every dime of that money that has been placed on our children and grandchildren's heads was, quote unquote, paid for when Washington spent the money. And then fast forward to today, when we're getting these fiscal responsibility lectures from Joe Biden, who's been part of this process for his entire career, going back nearly 50 years, um, we're being lectured about the fact that, that, oh, but this is paid for. It is not paid for. It is a massive, massive amount of money that, uh, that, that literally not a single one of us alive today will we'll be alive when this stuff is paid off. And I, I just, the, the, you know, talk about lectures that, you know, fiscal responsibility lectures that should be going on. It shouldn't be from these people. Yeah. And I mean, to have the cojones, frankly, the stones to frame all of this as the opposite of American decline. And if you're concerned about any of this and the debt and the tax increases and all of that, you are the one contributing complicit to use his word in American decline. It's it's backwards, but so much of it is backwards, right? They're saying trillions of dollars cost zero dollars. They're saying Afghanistan was uh, an extraordinary success. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, one, there's no border crisis. The, the border is secure. It's just intense, high octane gaslighting around the clock. Aren't you excited? Isn't it refreshing, Charlie, to have the truth telling unifying, norms-restoring adults back in charge. Yeah, no, precisely. And that, that really is kind of what is most concerning about all of this. And, and that clip you just played is a perfect example of it. Um, you know, Joe Biden has always been sort of a loquacious, 
um, uh, guy that everybody in Washington rolls their eyes about when he wanders off and starts talking about stuff and people don't really know what he's talking about. But he's reached a whole new level in yeah. in the last year since he's been president. And I guess somewhat during the campaign, but he was, you know, he really wasn't asked any tough questions throughout the campaign, so the American people didn't get to really see it. He's reached a new level of disconnect from reality and from what is uh, what would be considered norms or, or, or normal behavior even, uh, you know, beyond political norms. Um, it's, it's reached a new level of disconnect. And, it's, and I have to say that it's very, very concerning because not only do we have no idea what the hell he's talking about most of the time, it raises questions about, well, then if he's not in charge and he's not making these decisions and he's not coherent, who is the coherent person who is in charge making these decisions? And we don't know that. And, and in a democratic republic such as ours, if we don't know that, that's a real, real problem. Charlie, you mentioned norms, and one norm that we heard a lot of squawking about on the left was an independent Department of Justice. And they were talking a lot about how, oh, the Justice Department is so politicized under President Trump and Bill Barr. I think a lot of that was completely overblown. I think that they were just hysterical about Bill Barr uh, in ways that were not justified by the facts or reality, but that was that was their talking point and their absolute conviction over there on the left We saw from the DOJ under Biden this week and the Attorney General Merrick Garland something that I think is really pretty incredible and I think uh, pretty upsetting to me, which is the DOJ and the FBI now getting involved in these sort of flare-ups and controversies and confrontations at local school board meetings, right? There are a lot of parents who have been – shut out of these meetings due to COVID for a long time. The schools have been closed in far too many places, including in places, for example, like Virginia, where you live. There's a governor's race coming up. We'll have Glenn Youngkin on the show in the next hour here. But schools were closed in a lot of places run by Democrats. They, While the schools were closed, these woke school boards were out there changing the names of schools. You know, founding fathers were too offensive. You can't have those names on schools anymore. Uh, you can't have merit-based entry systems or application systems for some of these magnet schools anymore because of equity. You've got, you know, critical race theory and a bunch of other stuff all in the mix. And some parents, understandably, are very upset about that. And they've shown up and they've made their voices heard. In some cases, a handful of cases, I would say, Bad apples have gone too far, threats, some pushing and shoving and that sort of thing. There's no place for that, and I have no problem with law enforcement, local law enforcement, intervening if it's necessary. But for the Justice Department to get involved, with the FBI being sicked onto this alleged problem like it is a domestic terrorist threat or something, or or a matter for federal law enforcement, it seems to me, and I said this on Special Report last night, it seems like an effort— to delegitimize legitimate concerns and to basically chill the speech of a lot of people at the behest of the public education racket that is in the pockets of Democrats. And it would seem like this is an example, a pretty glaring one, of the Justice Department being politicized and putting their thumb on the scale in a way that is, I think, concerning about free speech and I think transparently political. 
What is your take on the FBI being instructed by the attorney general to trudge into what are local matters and local issues involving school boards and parents? Well, obviously, it's truly appalling uh, and and very curious uh, that they would even, um, you know, that they would even try to, you know, issue a memorandum about any of this. You know, let's remember, it is already illegal to assault a school board member. It is already illegal to threaten uh, bodily harm to anyone, including a school board member. So... The idea that, uh, that, that, you know, that, that this is, you know, that, that there's a problem that needs fixing here is absurd. If you do any, if, if you break the law, federal you're going to intervention. be charged with a crime. Yeah, the, the, the county sheriff can deal with it or the, you know, the municipal cops can come in. And if there's, if there's criminal behavior or violent threats, I'm all for going after those people. There's no place for that. It's totally unacceptable. But this is, I mean, it's, it's also crazy to me. Charlie, we saw last summer so many people on the left, progressive left, Democratic Party, downplaying violent riots in which there were a bunch of people murdered, right? And a ton of billions of damage done, assaults, uh, police being attacked, police precincts being attacked. That was last summer. And it was sort of waved away as this, uh, you know, this trumped up thing by these out of control right wingers. They're also sort of poo pooing the border crisis. But my goodness, some parents are raising their voices at school board meetings. Let's get the FBI on it. It's it really blows your mind the the standards that are applied or not applied, depending on the situation, depending on the politics. Well, exactly. And, and, and that's exactly, you know, th- that's my point is that, you know, th- th- this stuff is already illegal. It's always been illegal. And so the question is, why does the DOJ decide that they want to, to wade into this stuff and uh, determine that, uh, that, that, that parents attending school board meetings potentially present uh, terroristic threats? Well, yeah. the answer is because they want to weaponize everything and they want to politicize everything. And, they, and as you point out, they want to turn, uh, they, they want to uh, delegitimize or even criminalize what is legitimate, are legitimate people raising legitimate concerns and obviously profoundly frustrated in the process. Um, but, but there's an effort by the, the, this is an effort, a clear effort by the Department of Justice to, uh, to undermine all of that and any hope that parents might have to salvage their schools. Charlie Hurt, I want to talk about something happening here in Washington, just a few blocks away from where I'm broadcasting, and that would be Capitol Hill. Mitch McConnell has now made some sort of an offer to the Democrats on the debt ceiling saying, all right, look, you guys are in charge. It is your responsibility to raise the debt ceiling. And we talked yesterday about how Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer as senators both voted against raising the debt ceiling when Republicans were in charge of everything back in 2006, Schumer and the Democrats, in fact, ran attack ads against Republicans who had voted for raising the debt ceiling. And now there are some reports that Democratic senators are worried that if they're the party stuck with this, then they'll have attack ads run against them. Well, I mean, Chuck Schumer would know because he he did those ads when the shoe was on the other foot. But McConnell has said reportedly today, let's do one of two things. 
we will give you a brief extension into December so you can stop using this excuse, Democrats, that you're you have no time to use reconciliation uh, to raise the debt ceiling on your own. We'll we'll shove it into December uh, as long as you're willing to commit to doing it. We'll give you a little bit more time or we will expedite the reconciliation process. But you have to do it on your own. Now, the Democratic senators are reportedly huddling, trying to figure out what to do next. Some of them, of course, want to blow up the filibuster. It's what they always want to do. Others are very nervous about that. Apparently, some have made some positive noises about McConnell's offer. What do you make of this? Is this a story that anyone cares about outside the beltway? Because uh, we've talked a bit about it here. I find the dynamics between the Democrats and the Republicans and some of the hypocrisy and double standards to be at least somewhat interesting. How do you see this going down, Charlie? Well, I think the first thing is, uh, you're exactly right, outside of Washington, D.C., nobody cares about any of this stuff. Um, but uh, but it is, of course, interesting to people like you and me who, uh, for a living, we follow all of this stuff. And, it, you know, a lot of con- conservatives love to beat up on Mitch McConnell, and I understand that. And there are all kinds of things that you can criticize him about. But um, I've always been, as someone who is, is uh, you know, sympathetic to people who get frustrated with Washington and Republicans, um, I have always uh, admired Mitch McConnell's ability to game. He's a pretty shrewd uh, parliamentarian in the United States Senate, and he's he's done some pretty amazing things um, that he doesn't get credit for in uh, some circles. But the thing that I think is important to remember right here is that, that Mitch McConnell is looking at the situation, and he realizes that if he can punt this debate until after November or into into later part of November. Um, he is thinking about the, the the races in mainly in Virginia, but also uh, to a lesser degree in New Jersey. But right. it also brings the Democratic infighting back into clearer focus and back on the front burner on the reconciliation stuff where they're sort of going at each other over on the Democratic side. And, Charlie, when I talk about this, it is definitely an in-the-weeds D.C. fight, a debt ceiling hike. What I find interesting about it is the shamelessness of people like Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer who have done one thing when they were in the minority and now they are pretending to be totally aghast that Republicans would be doing any – why would you be doing anything political about any of this stuff? And my favorite thing about McConnell, and I agree with you on that point, Charlie, that you made – What my favorite thing about Mitch McConnell is that not only is he shrewd as a tactician where he knows exactly what he's doing and he thinks several steps ahead and he's very careful and disciplined, the reason that they hate him as much as they do on the left is that he forces them to live by the rules that they create for Republicans. When the shoe's on the other foot, he doesn't forget and he makes sure that they don't forget and have to live and sleep in the bed that they've made. And they loathe that. And I love that because it's the only way you might get people to behave better if they have to uh, if they have to abide by the rules that they create for the other team. Very quickly, Charlie, last word to you. Well, and of course, also remember that, you know, the the worst thing that that can happen for Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer is to have to make these big decisions after they've just lost a race in, say, Virginia. Uh, Democrats are going to be a whole lot more skittish in Congress at that point than they are even now, uh, and they're pretty skittish right now. Yep, and we will see if that is the outcome in Virginia just a few short weeks from now. And on that point, Glenn Youngkin, who's hoping to pull a bit of an upset, although it's looking extremely competitive, 
He's the Republican in the race. He will join me at the top of the next hour right here on The Guy Benson Show. Charlie Hurt, always appreciate it. Thank you for your time today. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, buddy. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show, Justin Trudeau is the prime minister in Canada. They just uh, had an election up there. His party clung on with a minority government, basically a status quo election. Even though the conservatives won more votes under their system, the liberals won more seats. In any case, Trudeau tweeted yesterday and mentioned this term that is brand new to me. He referred to, quote, Two SLGBTQQIA plus people. Two SLGBTQQIA plus people. I think I'm part of that community, but I don't even know. It's hard to keep up with. And I would suggest that Prime Minister Trudeau might want to calm down and chill with these additional letters and pluses and numbers after this little performance recently. Remember this, Cut 19? I will never apologize for standing up for an LGDP, uh, LGT, LBG, LGBTQ2 plus uh, kids' rights. <laughs> LGBTQ. Hard enough, Justin. Easy for you to say. It's the Guy Benson Show. Another hour coming up. Glenn Youngkin will be here. Don't go anywhere. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Our middle hour here on the Guy Benson Show is now underway. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every weekday, Monday through Friday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Listen live. That's the best way to do it. There's also a podcast free every single day. Join me tonight on Fox News Channel with Shannon Bream. The Midnight Hour. I'll be burning the midnight oil with Shannon. Looking forward to that. Fox News alert as we begin this hour. The Dow closes up today, 102 points. So a rally at the very end of the trading day. It ends, the Dow does, at 34,416. With us now is Glenn Youngkin, former CEO at the Carlyle Group and Virginia's Republican gubernatorial nominee with that election coming up just in a matter of weeks, early voting underway right now in the Old Dominion. And Glenn, it's great to have you back here. Thanks for joining us today. Guy, thank you for having me back. It's always great to be with you. And yes, there's three weeks and six days left to vote. Please get out and vote, Virginians. I will tell you that in my neighborhood, we have started to see some Glenn Youngkin lawn signs sprout up, which is something I have not seen for a Republican in our neck of the woods in years. So I know that is small. That is anecdotal. It is not data. The polls are close. But to see some Youngkin for governor signs in a very blue part of Virginia, people willing to stick that on their yard, I think is is interesting. And just one of the potential atmospherics here that has a lot of folks nationally looking at Virginia and recognizing that this is going to be an extremely close race. And I have to ask you about your opponent. Uh, Terry McAuliffe, at your most recent debate, 
He said something that went viral. You have put multiple ads up about it on TV. I've seen them watching NFL football, etc. Here's the soundbite. Cut 24. Yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. He doubled down on that. It's not like he misspoke. The next day, he said, no, that's what he really meant. Uh, Were you shocked on the debate stage, Glenn, when those words came out of his mouth? I wasn't shocked because I know that's what Terry McAuliffe thinks, but I was so surprised he said it. I mean, at the end of the day, Virginia parents have been standing up for their kids for the last 20 months. Please get our schools open. Stop teaching our children what to think, and please teach them how to think. Get the crazy material out of the libraries and the, and the curriculum. At least tell us that it's there, and that's the bill that Terry vetoed. But he came forth with a clear statement that he doesn't think parents have a role in their children's education. And the reality is in Virginia, by law, parents have a right to be deeply engaged in their parents, in their kids' education. And Terry McAuliffe wants government, bureaucrats, politicians in between parents and their kids. And I just think that is so fundamentally wrong. That's why we're pressing hard to start a charter school initiative like you've never seen. We're going to get parents back involved in their kids' education and listen to them. But the worst thing, Guy, the worst thing is that now that parents have stood up and said, Terry, we're rejecting this whole philosophy, he goes and gets his friend Joe Biden to dispatch the Department of Justice and the FBI to try to silence parents in Virginia who are standing up for their children and expressing mass dissatisfaction with a government control of their kids' education. And Terry McAuliffe and Joe Biden are trying to intimidate them to be quiet. This is what's happening in Virginia. It's no longer a campaign. This is a movement. And Virginians are going to go to the polls on behalf of parents. And oh, by the way, on behalf of parents around the country and make a a statement that's going to reject this progressive left liberal takeover of our children's education and say, no, not in Virginia any longer. You know, my next question was going to be about that DOJ development, and you got to it before I could even ask you about it. We mentioned it last hour. I was on TV last night talking about it as well. I'm sure you and I agree completely, Glenn, that there's no place for violence or fisticuffs or intimidation or threats, right? No one is endorsing that. And if those things happen on occasion around the country with certain bad actors or people go too far, if local officials or, you know, authorities have to get involved, you know, so be it. I find it actually shocking that the Department of Justice and the FBI would be inserted by the Biden Justice Department into this issue in this chilling sort of way to delegitimize what parents are rightly very concerned about, sort of intimidate them through the federal government talking about how this could be domestic terrorism. I mean, it seems extremely heavy handed To put it mildly. Yeah. Guy, it's outrageous. It is absolutely outrageous. Virginia parents have just been standing up at school boards meeting. That's what they've been doing. They have been expressing their views about their kids' education. And Terry McAuliffe, this is so consistent with his view. Terry McAuliffe said recently about the vaccine, if you don't agree with me, he's going to make your life difficult. Well, he's going to make your life difficult in all respects if you don't agree with his big government policy to put government and politicians and bureaucrats between you and your children. If you don't agree, he's going to get his friend to, to sick the FBI on you. I mean, it is outrageous. And we have to stand up together as Virginians 
And when I'm governor, I'm going to go work for parents and go work for students and, yes, teachers. And we, in fact, are going to recognize the fact that parents have an absolute right to be engaged in their kids' education, and they will not be silenced and intimidated by strong-arm tactics. You know, Glenn, I was just going to say real quickly here, because it sparked a thought, the Secretary of Education in the Biden administration, Secretary Cardona, recently said something very similar, actually, to what Terry McAuliffe said. He was asked by Senator Braun of Indiana. We just had him on the show this week. He was asked about kids and parents and schools and the role specifically of parents. He was asked, are parents the primary stakeholders in their own children's education? And Cardona would not say yes to that because it's not what progressives actually believe. So Cardona from the Biden administration was seemingly on the same page as Terry McAuliffe. And the connection here that I also found fascinating watching that most recent debate, your opponent, Terry McAuliffe, who's a longtime, you know, Clintonite machine politician, a lot of sleazy dealings over the years. Uh, He spent his entire life in politics. He would not say the name Joe Biden for the entire debate. It did not cross his lips, Joe Biden. They used to be, oh, you know, tied at the hip, come campaign for me. We love Joe Biden. Then the polling for Joe Biden has gotten much worse in the state of Virginia. All of a sudden, Terry won't talk about Joe Biden anymore, but he'll say Donald Trump as often as possible. I think your campaign counted 14 times in that debate. He talked about the former president zero times about his supposed friend, the current president, Joe Biden. This might be why in a Zoom call, McAuliffe admitted the dynamic in Virginia right now involving the president. Here's cut 21. Listen. But we got to get Democrats out to vote. We are facing a lot of headwinds from Washington. As you know, the president is unpopular today, unfortunately, here in Virginia. So we have got to plow through. The president unpopular in Virginia. Maybe that's why he was obsessed with talking about Donald Trump in your debate and wouldn't talk about his erstwhile dear friend, the president, the current president. Well, what's clear, of course, is that, yes, the president is wildly unpopular. Joe Biden is a failed president. He failed in Afghanistan. He's failing at the border. He's failed rebuilding our economy and created, reintroduced inflation back into our economy. It is a flash in the pan economy, and I've said that before. What what Terry McAuliffe needs to recognize also is that Virginians are rejecting Terry McAuliffe because Terry McAuliffe is on the wrong side of every issue that they hold dear. Virginians hold dear their children, and he wants to put government between parents and children. Virginians hold dear safe communities. And Terry McAuliffe wants to defund police. And he's embraced a group that wants to close prisons. Terry McAuliffe wants to raise taxes. I want to lower taxes. Virginians want a lower cost of living. Terry McAuliffe oversaw a stalled economy and wants to force everybody to join the union by getting rid of right to work. And I want to go to, I want to, go to work to build an economy and protect our right to work status. Terry McAuliffe's on the wrong side of every issue. So yes, Joe Biden is really unpopular because he's a failing president. And Terry McAuliffe is unpopular because he's a failing candidate. And this is why Virginians across this great commonwealth, Republicans, independents, and a lot of Democrats have joined our team. They've joined our team, and I invite everybody else to join at YunkinForGovernor.com because we're going to march forward with an agenda that is going to rebuild Virginia's economy and make it vibrant and make our schools the best again, as opposed to teaching our children what to think making our, our community safe again, as opposed to being in a 20-year high murder rate, 
And oh, by the way, lowering our cost of living, which has gotten to be so high, by cutting our tax burden as opposed to Terry McAuliffe raising it. This is what now, Virginians Glenn are excited about. And this is why we're, we're surging ahead in the polls here. Glenn Young, and I want to ask you about this as well, because I, I get all these commercials, right? And they're running ads against you. It's all the normal stuff. Oh, Glenn Youngkin, a businessman who killed puppies and children and poisoned everyone. Like this is, you know, you get this every four years in politics, these types of attacks. They're coming after you for having been a successful businessman. What's interesting, there's sort of like this wrinkle to the story. McAuliffe is assailing your business background. He has no background. He's just been a, a partisan political hack his entire career. He's made a lot of money doing it. So I guess, you know, credit where it's due. He took some of that money and invested it with your company <laughs> that he's attacking. And when you brought this up on the debate stage, he said, oh, well, I lost money on that investment. Like, you know, like the company's awful and he lost money because of you. I saw a fact check today from Axios that ran through the numbers and said, we looking at the actual data cannot imagine how it could be possible that he lost any money on those investments. That's what he said. His campaign is not providing any details about these alleged losses. It seems to me, just from where I'm sitting, I don't have any special knowledge. It seems to me that Terry McAuliffe took some of his, you know, Democrat machine money, invested it wisely with a company that you ran, Glenn, he probably turned a tidy profit. He realizes he doesn't want to talk about that because he's trying to attack you for running that company, having actually been in the business world. So he is not telling the truth about having lost money in your company. Does that sound about right? That's 100 percent correct that what you just said and what Terry McAuliffe says is 100 percent a lie. And he is so comfortable lying. It is the most amazing thing I've ever witnessed. If the fact set doesn't fit what he wants to say, then he just makes up his own set of facts. You know, the reality of, 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 of that's, that's making its way through Virginia right now is Virginians recognize this about him. I mean, we've had sheriffs who challenged him, and he yelled at a sheriff and told a sheriff, I don't care what you think. When, when I, in fact, challenge him on why he vetoed a bill, he says, well, I vetoed it because I don't want parents to have a role in our kids' education. And, and when I, in fact, say to him, Terry... <laughs> Terry, you made money in investing in Carlisle, taking the funds that you scraped off of raising money for the Clinton Foundation, and you gave it to me to manage for you, and we made you a lot of money. Rather than saying thank you and, and recognizing that all Virginians can trust me, he makes up a lie. This is Terry McAuliffe, and this is what 43 years of political operative behavior results in. You can't trust him. This is why Virginians are trusting me. And you know what? This is a moment for Virginians to go to the polls and make a fundamental statement that an outsider, a business guy who knows how to get things done, not a 43-year career politician who represents everything about the progressive left liberal Democrat party today. And we're going to reject that. And we're going to march forward with a new way for Virginians to see the well, best, best state in America. It's extremely close. Uh, look, it's become a blue state Virginia has. There's no question about that. But this this is a competitive race, neck and neck. I saw a poll today, a one-point race, which is just, you know, statistically meaningless. It's tied. Uh, there's been a few polls that I've seen that have you slightly ahead, a couple 
I have him slightly ahead. He's ahead overall in the polling average. Last question, as you track this every day, not just the energy, not just anecdotes like the yard signs that I told you about or people showing up at your rallies or, you know, a close polls that are public polls. What are you seeing internally data wise that makes you confident that you are right in this thing and potentially positioned to win? Guy, two big things. One, we have in fact we've we in fact have surged in the polls. And yes, over the summer we were down two or three, we were down four, we were always in the margin of error, and now we're even and up a little. I mean, that's just a fundamental shift. But the second thing that's happening is our voters are showing up to vote and his voters aren't. And our voters are not just Republicans, it's independents, it's Democrats all coming to the polls and voting. And we've seen in early voting an enormous, enormous sense of momentum in what we're doing and an absolute sense of almost apathy in what Terry McAuliffe is offering. And by the way, well, I will tell you this, Glenn, I just I got a. I got to run here in a second here because we're up on a break, but I will tell you this, and I wasn't planning on telling you this, but as soon as I leave the studio today, I'm actually driving to my polling place and I'm going to vote in Virginia, and I think it's pretty clear who's going to get my vote. And so I hope many other people who are sick of what's happening and upset about what's happening in Washington who live in Virginia, this is a chance to send a message to the whole country and to the Democratic Party and to really – send a chill down the spine of national Democrats as well, which is why we are so focused on this national show about a key, key race in the state of Virginia just outside Washington, D.C. Glenn Youngkin, the Republican candidate for governor of Virginia here on The Guy Benson Show. Glenn, we appreciate it. Let's talk again before the election. Guy, thanks for having me again, and I invite everybody to join us at YunkinForGovernor.com, and thank you for your vote. You bet, and we'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. I'm Guy Benson, back on The Guy Benson Show. We open today on immigration because we are not going to be distracted from the border crisis. We are also not going to be distracted and let go of or turn the page on, to borrow the president's phrase, Afghanistan, where thousands of Americans are still stranded. In a grotesque violation of our national honor and the word of the president, I saw actually a report today that there are dozens of children, American children, stranded in Afghanistan, if you can believe that. And then, of course, the tens of thousands of our allies there who we promised to get out and then Biden didn't. Now, one of the things that he did in Afghanistan that was extremely controversial, by which I mean shockingly stupid, And it doesn't take a genius or even a military expert to say, you know, if a terrorist organization is slowly but surely, maybe not so slowly, taking over this country and we're going to need an evacuation, maybe we should keep our strategic air base open for the evacuation. And maybe we shouldn't just give it up to the local government that's collapsing, especially when there's a prison filled with hardened jihadists. At that base, here's CNN's Clarissa Ward with an announcement and a report earlier today. Cut 22. Abdul Rahman Al-Lugari, the terrorist who from ISIS-K who was responsible for killing 13 American service members and dozens of Afghan civilians trying to get out of the country, that he had been held at Parwan Prison in Bagram Air Base. 
when the Taliban took power on that Sunday, the first thing they did before coming into Kabul was essentially to empty the prisons at Parwan prison in Bagram and also in Pulacharkia. The terrorist who killed our men and women in Afghanistan during the withdrawal was released from Bagram by the Taliban. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through the show, halfway through the week, it is the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. If you've missed any of it so far today, we have a podcast. It's on demand. It's free. GuyBensonShow.com. Also, many ways to listen live at GuyBensonShow.com. We still have much more to come, of course. And our next guest is our friend Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, head of research at Basel, and chief romance correspondent here at the show. She is also, as we have established, with child, and we are pleased to welcome her back to the program ahead of The Five, which she is co-hosting today on Fox News Channel, coming up in just a few minutes. Jesse, welcome back. Thank you so much. How's everything going? How are you? How's the baby? Everything is good. I just did a 3D ultrasound. Let me tell you, it's scary (laughs) what (laughs) it looks like inside of you. But ultimately, very cute. I will text you the picture. I will... Hopefully not oh, please have do. that revealed on air. Um, but yeah, no, everything's good. I just um, you I never know. Like da- Dana could just tee it up. She's like, we actually have an image here. I think if we in like a call for on the five. Could could the control room pull up uh, Jessica's baby? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very. And how far along are you again? I am well. Pregnant women count in weeks. Normal people count in months. So I'm seven and a half months pregnant, which is like 30 weeks. I'm due mid-December. Yeah, you're you're really getting close. I mean, this is this I'm is pregnant. the uh, the final. Yeah. Are you ready to be done? Or you're like, okay, uh, let's let's get this baby and the show on the road here. Or is it sort of an equilibrium that you've reached and it's okay? I have learned that people have it a lot worse than I do, so I do not complain. But, um, no, I am not one of those women that thinks that this is, like, the most beautiful time of my life and that I'm, you know, a blossoming flower. Like, I'm gross, and I would like my body back. So uh, I'm ready, but I also have no things set up, so it would be bad um, to have this right. early of an arrival. You need the time. We're between a rock. I need. I will be using the time. Yes, the nesting stage will begin at some point. It just hasn't quite yet. And last question on this subject, have any of your cravings changed? Because last time we spoke, it was hot dogs. And I know this can be a very volatile thing for some pregnant women where they are craving something one day and then completely disgusted by it the next. It really depends on the pregnancy. Are you still sort of addicted to hot dogs right now? Still very much into hot dogs. And <laughs> the uh, the cravings also go for like, for people, you know, people are like, I'm in this very scary lady chat room thing, you know, where people post different topics and then there's a thread. It's like Reddit for pregnant women. And mm-hmm. the a number of threads that are like, I hate my husband, anybody else. And I devour those. Like, Brian, my husband falls asleep way earlier than I do. So basically, I sit there reading nasty things about husbands for like two hours. After You're just like glancing <laughs> bitterly over at the bed as he sleeps uh-huh. easily. Yeah, and like, look what you did to me, and I'm getting up every five minutes to pee because my bladder is the size of a grape, and, <laughs> you know, 
I'm, By the way, I do have to ask you this. I know I promised it was the last question, but in honor of our former colleague, Max, who's now over on the TV side at Fox, he would want me to ask this important question about your hot dogs. What toppings do you put on a hot dog? Because this has been the source of a great deal of consternation and debate here on the show. Uh, I'm a sauerkraut and mustard person. Okay. I think that's a pretty good answer, and I think Max would accept it. We can send it over to what him. What is he like? Judges. Uh, he has different views. I seem to recall that mustard was key for him. If I'm remembering correctly, I think that your order that you just described is acceptable. Judges, I think, yes, I think we're getting acceptable as a response here, so we can move on. Jesse, let's talk about politics. Setting aside the debt ceiling, which appears like it might get resolved in the coming hours or days, there is still this big sort of gladiator fight on your side of the aisle among Democrats exclusively on the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill and people digging in on certain demands. Some movement maybe, but then there seem to be snags that come up with public comments every few hours. How do you see this playing out? And are you surprised that it has been this acrimonious because I expected your party to just sort of get in line and do the thing, even if people didn't get exactly what they wanted, because ultimately it's a lot of government spending. And that's something that Democrats typically agree on. But it has not been easy. And it seems like maybe one of the hardest jobs legislatively that Speaker Pelosi has ever encountered. It's definitely a big one. I, I think uh when you're dealing with landmark legislation, which this definitely will be, um, you know, up there with, frankly, the Affordable Care Act, um, which was her big achievement of the uh, first couple of the Obama years, you're going to have some issues. But the moderates um, Senate side are, you know, more powerful than ever before what Manchin and Cinema can pull off. And you have the progressive left on the House side uh, more powerful than they would than they were before. Um, but I would say that I am much more hopeful for the reconciliation bill than I was just a couple of days ago. It seems like that since Manchin is now down to like, you know, he's at 1.9 to 2.2 trillion, I think is the number. And Congresswoman um, Jai Paul or Jai Paul, I mispronounce it sometimes, has indicated that she could probably talk at 2.5 trillion, that it feels like we're going to have a deal here. But this is always the issue with connecting the reconciliation bill and the infrastructure bill. And I really think that they should have just gone ahead with the infrastructure bill, which is bipartisan. Everyone's happy with it, more or less. And then actually done pieces of the reconciliation bill as standalones. And you probably wouldn't have had much trouble getting them passed one at a time, right? Like that this is how much we're going to do child tax credit. This is what we're going to do for Medicare expansion, et cetera. Um, So that would have been what I would have considered. um, But it, I believe Nancy will get her way. I mean, she won't get her full way because her full way was to do reconciliation first, $3.5 trillion, and then do the bipartisan infrastructure deal. I don't think that that's going to happen. It clearly hasn't happened, and they've had to punt several times already. So I think that they will, and I've said this from the beginning, my prediction is they will get something done, but it has been a very painful and at times ugly process, and it still isn't over because there are questions from Manchin about not just top-line dollar amounts, but certain restrictions, certain pay-fors, the Hyde Amendment. Then you've got Senator Cinema, who you mentioned from Arizona. She's got her own set of concerns about what she's willing to do and not do, and they don't need one of them. They need both of them. 
Which brings me to that incident out in Arizona in Tempe over the weekend, which has been discussed a lot. We've talked about it here, of course, with cinema getting chased with cameras into the bathroom, even into the bathroom stall when she was uh, taking a break from teaching her class at Arizona State University. These activists haranguing her, harassing her, stalking her in a place, a building where they weren't even authorized to be. Were you at all surprised, Jessica? Because I really was that President Biden reacted the way he did, sort of with nonchalance, saying, well, not appropriate, but this happens to everyone and it's part of the process. And he sort of chuckled. Um, It seemed to me like this is not part of the process. This is beyond the pale and not normal as someone who campaigned on restoring norms. And even if he in some way didn't think it was a big deal or almost got, uh, you know, some pleasure out of seeing her uh, get be given a hard time, given the fact that I think he's frustrated with her just from a political standpoint, it seems almost criminal not to take an opportunity to fully, fully, fully reject those types of tactics and come to her defense and totally back her up, considering the fact that you really need her vote. It just seemed like a puzzling response from the president on multiple levels to me. And I wonder, as a Democrat, how the whole episode with cinema and Biden's reaction and some of the people full-blown justifying what happened to cinema, how that strikes you. Um, so I think that, you know, I appreciate that you mentioned that he also said it was inappropriate because I think a lot of the coverage has ignored that part of it completely and just said yeah, that. Kind of a know, throwaway, though. Ah, it's theory. not appropriate. But. It, but it matters that, you know, if he had just said it's just part of the job, that would have seemed, you know, 100 percent completely in the wrong. And as it as it happened, I would have liked more because there, there, I can't think of many things more violating than being followed into a bathroom. Right. Like that's not people outside of your office. That's not even what happened on an airplane on the airplane, though. That's, you know, none of it should be going on. And I do think that there should have been more forceful condemnation. Um, there was by majority of Democrats, um, certainly the ones whose politics I align with more, you know, widespread condemnation when Sarah Sanders, Huckabee Sanders got thrown out of, I think it's called the Little Red Hen, that restaurant, you know, and families harassed at the table and things like that. There, We don't need to do things that way. And the progressive left engages in more aggressive political warfare than is my taste. For sure. I, I don't think that's how you get things done. I do wish that Senator Cinema would actually talk to more reporters and you say, you know, she has a very specific set of demands, but she doesn't talk about it that much. You know, Joe Banchin has been much more forthcoming as to what his pain points are, right? Like, these are my non-negotiables. This is where I think we can work together, et cetera. And Cinema has been doing a lot of dodging, but, you know, it's obviously completely off the reservation, the idea that you can follow someone into a bathroom. Yeah, with cameras, too. I mean, it was it was just awful. And there were some people full blown defending it, justifying it, saying it was worth it. It should be done. It's a tactic that's fair game. Uh, I think that's pretty shocking. And I also don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to work on someone like Kirsten Cinema. It could, in fact, have the opposite effect, which is a part of the idiocy. It's again, it's it's wrong. It's gross. And I think it's counterproductive, which is why, you know, it's. Sort of interesting to watch from the other side of the ideological aisle how this is a Democratic senator being treated this way. And I do sort of feel like our civility panic would maybe sound and look a little bit different if this were a bunch of 
conservatives who had done this to her or a female lawmaker on the other side of the aisle. But it's sort of friendly fire, blue on blue. And so the media has been a little bit more, I think, reluctant to lean into that plot line or that storyline as they inevitably would under different political dynamics. Revisiting a subject that we have touched on previously together, Cody Rigsby, who's a Peloton instructor. You and I do Peloton. He's also a contestant on Dancing with the Stars. He recently announced that he has COVID again. He had COVID, I believe, in February. Then he got fully vaccinated in the spring. So all the immunity. Now he's got another case. Very mild, as you would expect. Thank goodness. But still a breakthrough, breakthrough case, if you will. So he's been sidelined from Dancing with the Stars. It was Britney Spears week, so it had to have killed him not to perform normally. He did do a coordinated thing from home with his partner who was also at home because she has COVID. They did not get great scores, apparently, but how could you? They weren't dancing together. It also would have been unfair, in my view, to throw them off the show when they have COVID and couldn't perform live in person. And so they have live to see another week and to perform again, I think he probably insisted one way or another to perform because he's a huge Britney Spears fan. But a lot of drama with that very popular reality show and this sort of COVID situation that they have, plus just the reality that here is someone who had natural immunity plus the vaccine and he still got COVID again. A lot to digest. Your reaction? Yeah, it was, I mean, obviously draws everyone's attention to the fact that these breakthrough cases are real and are happening all the time and uh, and all of that. But I did think the remote situation was very strange. I guess that's how you have to do these things. And no one should be penalized necessarily for, right. uh, you know, being sick. But at the same time, that's not what the show is. So I wonder if they could have just given him a pass to the next week. He should probably be cleared um, by then. Yeah. Hopefully that that was also my thought. I also wondered, did he just say, look, it, it would be fair for us to compete on some level. It would be unfair to get thrown off the show when you're you know, at home and your partner's at home doing a coordinated dance to Britney Spears. I also wonder, could he have insisted to perform because it was Britney, right? Because he's such a huge fan of hers. In any case, hopefully a speedy recovery for both of them. They can get uh, back into the mix. I, I confess I did not watch the show this week. I read about this little drama, but I was surprised and a little bit concerned to hear about the breakthrough case. Those aren't uncommon, as I know. I had one. But the breakthrough case from someone who had COVID and the vaccine, I think it just goes to show that the the key is to get as much immunity as you can through the vaccine. And if you've also had the disease, that antibody infusion helps as well. And then we have to sort of start to learn to live with COVID as an endemic illness, and we can't let it dominate the way that we live our lives as a society, because if we do, we will have restrictions forever, which I am not in favor of and I don't think makes sense. We'll leave it there for now. Jessica Tarloff, I know you have a few minutes before the five, maybe squeeze in a quick hot dog, mustard, sauerkraut. Don't spill on your dress. Have a great show. We'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Jessica Tarloff on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. Here's a story out of Chicago, my former hometown for a number of years, that is just stunning, even by Chicago standards. Listen to this from foxnews.com. Illinois prosecutors rejected charging five suspects in a deadly gang-related shootout that unfolded in Chicago, despite police 
reportedly seeking to charge all five suspects with murder and aggravated battery. It was a shootout that took place Friday morning, reportedly sparked by an internal dispute between factions of a gang. This was according to the Chicago Sun-Times. Five men were taken into custody over the shootout, which required a SWAT team response and led to police finding more than 70 shell casings. One shooter was left dead, two wounded. The police source told the outlet, the Sun-Times, that law enforcement sought murder and aggravated battery charges for all five suspects. But Sunday morning, however, the suspects were released without charges. Quote, mutual combatants was cited as the reason for the rejection according to a police report reviewed by the Sun-Times. And this was based on the state attorney's determination. So the prosecutors. The report also noted that the suspects were not cooperating with investigators, but mutual combatants was apparently the excuse here. A legal phrase defined as a fight into which both parties enter willingly upon a sudden quarrel in hot blood and mutually fight upon equal terms And this evidently was part of the reason why the prosecutors decided not to prosecute these people involved in a huge, crazy, Wild West shootout in the streets of Chicago. Mutual combatants, like what, like duels? What on earth? This was Kim Fox, the prosecutor. You might remember her. She gave that sweetheart, corrupt-looking deal to Jussie Smollett on his hate crime hoax. Same woman. She's under fire for this as well because she was overruled by a special prosecutor in the Smollett case. Now the mayor's coming down against her. She's firing back at the mayor. The mayor is asking for other people to intervene. And so it goes in Chicago. Woke, soft on crime Democrats win elections. And now we've got apparently mutual combatant exceptions to murder laws. Absolutely nuts. One of my buddies who's a federal prosecutor could not believe this story. I sent him like, is this, am I missing something? He's like, wow. Wow is right. Your update from Chicago. The Guy Benson Show continues. Final hour coming up. Some really rough polls for the Democrats and President Biden. We'll break them all down with Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics. That's straight ahead. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's Happy Hour on Wednesday on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. It's our final hour here together, at least for today. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free of charge, always on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. Crisp, delicious, refreshing, and just a terrific beverage year-round. We recommend it. Many of you have tried it. Many of you have yet to try it, but you still can, and you really should. It's good. 
TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where it's sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Please and thank you. We are now joined again by Tom Bevan, who's co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com. Tom, it's great to have you back here. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. I want to walk through some of the polling data that has emerged in just the last 24 hours or so. Almost none of it paints a rosy picture for the Democratic Party, the Biden White House, Speaker Pelosi, and the left in general, quite frankly. I see that there's a morning consult poll that has Joe Biden's disapproval rating now rising again. It's at a high in that series, a 52% disapproval rating for the president. There's also this Quinnipiac poll before we get to Gallup. And I find the Quinnipiac numbers interesting for this reason. That is a pollster that has really struggled in recent cycles to get it right, I think is a kind way to put it. They have massively underestimated Republican performance in a bunch of races, key races nationwide. At the state level, Florida comes to mind where they've blown some statewide races by like seven, eight, nine points, which is a disastrous miss. The Quinnipiac poll in recent years has become very, very favorable to Democrats. And when you see their numbers, you generally, at least I do, take them with a huge chunk of salt because they've had such a terrible track record with sort of a blue tint, a very heavy blue tint. However, their latest numbers, their latest data set shows Republicans now pulling into the lead on the generic congressional ballot, which is a metric on which Republicans often trail even in years where they're going to actually end up doing pretty well in the actual results. Democrats seem to have an institutional advantage overall on that question, the generic ballot. And yet here is this Democrat-leaning pollster with what has to be a red flag at this stage in the cycle for Democrats, the Republicans ahead by three points, if that's even close to reality. I know we're a ways off. We're a year away, in fact. But a year from now, if we're even close to the Republicans tied or ahead in the congressional ballot, that would portend bad things for the Democrats, would it not? Oh, massively bad things. I mean, it would be a complete bloodbath. I mean, interesting thing. So everything you said about about Quinnipiac is is correct. Um, now, this could be an outlier. This could just be a bad sample. Um, it could be something that, you know, they'll they'll take another poll in a few weeks and have the Democrats back ahead. But it is interesting to note that just three weeks ago, they had the Democrats leading by about four percentage points. So if this if this isn't a bad sample, if it's not an outlier, they're showing a, a pretty strong move in in the direction of Republicans over the last three weeks. And what's happened over the last three weeks? Well, we've had we've had all this talk of mandates. We've had all of this big push on on the budget, on budget reconciliation. So I, I do think it is a red flag for Democrats. And again, most of the other polls thus far still have still have Democrats leading in the generic ballot. But to your point, to the extent that that number is even close, um, you know, Republicans usually traditionally overperform their generic ballot number by three, three and a half, four points sometimes. And so to the extent that that number is even, uh, you know, close, I think it's a it's a bad sign for Democrats. And again, we're going to have a we're going to have a theoretical test 
of this in Virginia in just a couple of weeks in the gubernatorial right. race there. And I, th- I think that'll also, you know, give you a, a good indication of just where those numbers are, how, how, how truthful those numbers are, because we're going to actually get a we're going to get a real live test of that in just a couple of weeks. Yeah, in a blue state, but a blue state with still some purple characteristics, I would say, and some historical advantages for the Republicans, given who controls Washington, D.C., and that dynamic often works against the party in power when Virginians go to the polls. So it's looking like a very tight race. We might come back to that because we had Glenn Youngkin on the show earlier today. But on these national numbers, you're right. The Quinnipiac numbers uh, could be an outlier. There was another generic ballot poll in the last few weeks that had Republicans ahead. The rest of them have Democrats ahead by a couple points, which, to your point, is, is not really a great spot for them to be. But what intrigues me and what's another layer here, I would say, Tom, that leads me to at least reach the conclusion that the Quinnipiac favorable numbers for Republicans can't be that far off or that way out in left or, I guess in this case, right field, are the latest results from Gallup. So Gallup did not do the traditional congressional ballot head-to-head. They did, however, track, as they often do, which party do you trust more on, and then they have fill-in-the-blank a few different issues. And what they found, and this is just out today, I'm going to quote, Americans by significant margins now view the Republican Party as better than the Democratic Party at protecting the nation from international threats. That is a 15-point lead on national security for Republicans and at ensuring the nation remains prosperous. So this is the economy. Republicans are up nine on that, where they have actually a majority favoring them or preferring them on both security and prosperity, which, I mean, those are two really important pillars of any election. And then they also asked a broader question, a little bit more vague, on the issues that matter to you the most, the single issue, whatever you care about the most, which party is better equipped to handle that issue in your mind. And Republicans also have a lead on that front as well. They have now surged out to a three-point lead on that question. So – When Gallup asks voters, all right, think of the issue that matters most to you. Which party do you trust more? The Republicans have a three-point lead there. And when they specify national security and economic prosperity, it's the GOP by 15 and 9 percentage points respectively. That's from Gallup. And you add that in and layer it on top of the Quinnipiac numbers and the morning consult number that has Biden at 52 percent. That starts to be more of a trend that tells a story in my mind. Oh, absolutely. And and look, you know, Biden, there are a couple other metrics that we can talk. I mean, obviously, his overall job approval, which is now underwater, <clears throat> but he's suffering with independence, which is a, obviously a crucial voting block. He still has, still has very strong support among Democrats um, and almost no support among Republicans. So independents are sort of the ball game, and he's falling short with independence. You look and at by the way, just to, just to buttress that point real quick, Tom, In the Gallup numbers, I'll just quote it to you because it really reinforces what you're saying. Quote, since last year, there have been double-digit declines in the percentages of independents who say the Democratic Party is better at handling the most important problems and national security and the economy. So the independents, Tom, are shifting away, at least in this Gallup poll, by double digits from the Democrats, maybe not completely 
toward the Republicans, but the exodus of independence from the Democratic Party, I think, goes to the broader point that you're making. And sorry for the interruption. I just wanted to interject that. No, that's fine. Um, and, and it is. Look, it's, it's true. And there are, there are a couple different reasons for that. The other point I was going to mention is if you look at Biden's favorable ratings, right? He, he's had a positive favorable rating for, for as long as he's been. Uh, we've been tracking it, you know, even when he was vice president during the election, because he had this aura of being, you know, sort of affable Uncle Joe. Well, his, his favorable ratings um, are now underwater uh, for the first time. So he is really and that speaks to this general idea that that and the reason i think independents have walked away from him so quickly is because of what's happened is i mean there are individual issues you can look at the border you can look at afghanistan but what i think in and afghanistan was really i think the tipping point and this idea that that he was the all of his experience the adults were in charge he's the competent one uh that was exploded right that myth was exploded and also mm-hmm. You know, this idea that he was going to tell us the truth about things, you know, good, bad, or the other. He was going to restore integrity to the Oval Office. Trump was a liar, but he was a truth teller. Well, you know, it turns out he's, he hasn't been telling the truth to the American people, and that's on a number of issues. Um, and the administration has oftentimes looked as if it's in denial of, of the reality of what's going on, both, you know, at the border and Afghanistan and other places. And so I think that's one of the reasons uh, he also promised to run as a uniter, and I think a lot of independents really bought into that and have seen him not govern in that same way. And so for all those reasons, I think the president is suffering personally, and, and his party is suffering as a result. This is something that we've mentioned, Tom, that Joe Biden's name is nowhere to be found when it comes to Terry McAuliffe's campaign at the moment. And his debate performance, he wouldn't say the name Joe Biden. He said Trump a lot wouldn't say Biden. They used to be sort of attached at the hip. And when the polling looked better for the president, Terry McAuliffe was like, oh, yeah, effectively saying I'm a Biden Democrat. Let's do this thing. And now uh, that name has sort of vanished, which I find interesting. As you look at the aforementioned gubernatorial race in Virginia, what's your read on it? Because the polls would suggest that McAuliffe, the Democrat, is still the favorite, maybe very narrowly. There have been a couple polls that have bucked in the other direction. Virginia has trended heavily away from the Republican Party, especially in the last few years, really the last decade. Is this not just a competitive race? Is this a winnable race for the Republicans? Could this be an example of the polls getting it wrong? Or would you have your money still on Terry McAuliffe right now because he does have a slight lead in the average and, you know, Virginia is a blue-leaning state. Is this kind of fool's gold for the GOP, even though it's a very favorable national environment in a lot of ways from the perspective of Virginia Republicans? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is a winnable race. I think McAuliffe still is the slight favor, but, but certainly uh, – look, one of the reasons that, that Republicans nominated Glenn Youngkin in the first place is because they thought he was the candidate who could best bridge the divide between – sort of the Trump voters who have to turn out in the southern and western part of the state, and he could eat into the Democrats' lead in the northern suburbs, right? That's where, that's where the state has really tilted heavily blue and, and why it has sort of not become – it's become more of a blue state than, than even a purple state in, in recent cycles. Um, and I think, I think he's actually doing that thus far. And I think Terry McAuliffe made a huge mistake in that debate by talking about 
um, you know, that, that teachers shouldn't be telling uh, school boards what they should be teaching, uh, right. you know, because that's an issue that is just absolutely off the charts in places like Loudoun County and others. And so he sort of played right into to Youngkin's hands on that issue. And, and if it is true that Youngkin can, can, you know, cut into those leads, win back some of the suburban voters, and can still, you know, the, the, the hardcore conservatives, the Trump supporters in the other parts of the state are, are you know, will actually turn out and vote, um, then that is the perfect storm that Democrats have feared. I mean, that is an environment where you absolutely could see, uh, could see Tara McAuliffe. And the other thing is, you know, if Democrats don't turn out, and, and there's some indication that right. they're not as... They're not as excited about Terry McAuliffe as a sort of a, you know, blast from the past, retread. He does not. Represent. Well, and they're not they're not like terrified of Glenn Young in the way they were all worked up about Donald Trump. And when he's not on the ballot, you can mention his name a gazillion times and run ads featuring Donald Trump. If your own people don't really believe that's a fair comparison and the stakes are lower. I mean, that also could be a turnout problem for the Democrats. So it will be fascinating to see how it goes down in Virginia. I think it's telling, and you're absolutely right, Yunkin was so eager to talk about education, McAuliffe's comments about parents uh, on the show today in ads that are blanketing Northern Virginia right now. I think he feels like this is a, a closing argument with a big assist from his opponent, and whether that really allows him to get it done in a matter of just weeks now remains to be seen, but... I feel like the Yunkin folks truly do believe that they've got the wind at their backs at the moment, and we will find out whether voters agree. Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics, president and founder of that website where they aggregate so much of the polling that we just talked about. Tom, always appreciate your analysis. Thanks, guy. And with that, we will step aside and come back on the happy hour. It is The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. The pitch to Stanton. Drove, there it goes. Deep left. It is high. It is far. It is gone. Out of the ballpark. A Stantonian home run. Now, what did, what did I do wrong? What did I see wrong? He's at first base. Back on the program here. I call it the happy hour, but not too happy about the result. That was the Yankees radio call. John Sterling butchering what he thought was a home run turned out to be a single because Stanton Giancarlo Stanton also thought it was a home run but it was off the green monster he was doing his home run trot and turned out to just be a single I mean it's out in any other ballpark but that tall wall prevented it from going out it was a blast but wasn't a great look for Stanton. Obviously, Sterling missed it on his call. And that's kind of how the night went for the New York Yankees. All downhill from there. Nothing went well for New York up in Boston in Fenway Park. And the Red Sox won the one-game wild card, sudden death, winner-go-home playoff game. And they will advance to take on Tampa Bay in the next round, the ALDS. I think Tampa will be... Heavily favored, whether the Yankees had won, which they didn't, the Red Sox won. I would be surprised if either of those teams could beat Tampa because they are really good. The Rays are. We talked about that with Jeff Passan yesterday. But I actually didn't have a lot of time to watch the game last night. Thank goodness. I saw the Red Sox go ahead two to nothing, 
And then I had a few other things that I had to do. I was monitoring the score. My family's group text was blowing up and the news never seemed to get any better. And so we decided just to watch Squid Game, which struck me as less disturbing than the Yankees game, which is saying a lot because, as we discussed yesterday here on the show, Squid Game is a highly disturbing show. It is a dystopian nightmare. In fact, that's what it's depicting. But it is very compelling. Very sad episode last night. The Marbles episode. I'll just say that. I know producer Christine is intrigued. She wants to watch it. Bobby's saying, let's hold off. Let's not watch it right before bed for the purposes of staving off nightmares. I think Christine might give up on Squid Game pretty quickly if she's a little squeamish. But I'm squeamish watching the Yankees lose in Boston, which they did. Congratulations to the Red Sox. And off we go to the rest of the playoffs with the NL wildcard tonight, Cardinals, Dodgers. And I feel like a lot of Yankees fans, including yours truly, are looking for some changes in management in the Bronx. I'll leave it at that. And the happy hour will get happy again when we come back right after this. It's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Earlier, we spoke with Charlie Hurt, our colleague here at Fox News, opinion editor at The Washington Times. Always a fun time with Charlie, including today. Here's part of our conversation about Joe Biden, the news of the day and much more. So uh, yesterday during the show, we took a little bit of the president speaking live about his agenda and these trillions of dollars that the Democrats want to spend. He said that the tax increases and all this stuff would actually help make America more competitive. And people who don't want to spend trillions of dollars on this stuff are, quote, complicit in American decline. Uh, Speaking of decline, he also had this to say, I want you to listen to Cut 17 and give us your in-depth analysis. Listen. When you build a charging station, it's like back in the day when my grandpa worked for the American Oil Company back in the turn of the, in the 1920 in that area. They went from state to state convincing people that they put allowed them to put 20,000 gallons of gasoline under the ground. They didn't want them around. Charlie, your thoughts? As an expert who has covered Joe Biden for 20-plus years now uh, throughout his service, in the United States Senate, as well as vice president, and, and now as president, I can tell you, I have no freaking idea what the hell he's talking about right there. Okay, uh, so you have failed as the chief senior Biden whisperer here at the Guy Benson Show. But I, I also think that that analysis is fair, honestly, because I listened to it several times. Um, I don't know what he's talking about either. But to the point that I mentioned before that, Charlie, He's trying to sell this plan. I know we are told that the plan is popular, and yet his approval rating continues to go down and down and down, and now he's framing it, Mr. Unity, he's framing it as if you're against this stuff, then you're in favor of American decline. That's quite a take. Yeah, it really is, especially when you consider the fact that we're getting lectures from Joe Biden and Democrats right now about fiscal responsibility. We're talking about a time right now where we're already staring at $28 trillion in debt that these people have placed on our 
children and grandchildren's heads that will never be paid off in any of our lifetimes. And, uh, and every dime of that money that has been placed on our children and grandchildren's heads was, quote, unquote, paid for when Washington spent the money. Just, and then fast forward to today, when we're getting these fiscal responsibility lectures from Joe Biden, who's been part of this process for his entire career, going back nearly yeah, 50 decades. years, um, we're being lectured about the fact that, that, oh, but this is paid for. It is not paid for. It is a massive, massive amount of money that, uh, that, that literally not a single one of us alive today will, will be alive when this stuff is paid off. And I, I just, the, the, you know, talk about lectures that, you know, fiscal responsibility lectures that should be going on. It shouldn't be from these people. Yeah. And I mean, to have the cojones, frankly, the stones to frame all of this as the opposite of American decline. And if you're concerned about any of this and the debt and the tax increases and all of that, you are the one contributing complicit to use his word in American decline. It's it's backwards, but so much of it is backwards, right? They're saying trillions of dollars cost zero dollars. They're saying Afghanistan was uh, an extraordinary success. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, one, there's no border crisis. The, the border is secure. It's just intense, high-octane gaslighting around the clock. Aren't you excited? Isn't it refreshing, Charlie, to have the truth-telling, unifying, norms-restoring adults back in charge? Yeah. No, precisely. And that, that really is kind of what is most concerning about all of this. And, and that clip you just played is a perfect example of it. Um, you know, Joe Biden has always been sort of a loquacious um, uh, guy that everybody in Washington rolls their eyes about when he wanders off and starts talking about stuff and people don't really know what he's talking about. But he's reached a whole new level in yeah. in the last year since he's been president. And I guess somewhat during the campaign, but he was, you know, he really wasn't asked any tough questions throughout the campaign, so the American people didn't get to really see it. He's reached a new level of disconnect from reality and from what is uh what would be considered norms or 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 normal behavior even uh you know beyond political norms. Um it's it's reached a new level of disconnect, and it's and I have to say that it's very very concerning because not only do we have no idea what the hell he's talking about most of the time, it raises questions about well then if he's not in charge and he's not making these decisions and he's not coherent, who is the coherent person who is in charge making these decisions, and we don't know that, and and in a democratic republic such as ours, if we don't know that, that's a real real problem. Charlie, you mentioned norms, and one norm that we heard a lot of squawking about on the left was an independent Department of Justice. And they were talking a lot about how, oh, the Justice Department is so politicized under President Trump and Bill Barr. I think a lot of that was completely overblown. I think that they were just hysterical about Bill Barr uh, in ways that were not justified by the facts or reality. But that was that was their talking point and their absolute conviction over there on the left my full conversation with Charlie Hurt of Fox News and The Washington Times, if you missed any of it, available with the entire show, as a matter of fact, on demand for free. It's our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast that is around the clock, on demand, every day, no charge. When we come back, the home stretch. Curious Christine has questions about a brand new Fox Business Network show about mining for gold in Montana. Some of the stars of that show will join us. Christine will have questions. 
You don't want to miss it straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. You know, I had a guy tell me early on in my career, you're going to spend the rest of your life working your idea or working somebody else's. You've got to decide what you want to do. All of us work for mining companies all of our lives. Now we're working our idea. It's the home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. The free podcast available every single day. Well, there's a new show on Fox Business Network in primetime. It airs Wednesdays, so tonight, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time on FBN. It's called American Gold, The Legend of Bear Gulch. And two of its stars I saw earlier on with Neil Cavuto on FBN. They join us now from New York in our studios. Rick and Tad Dale are two of the five Dale brothers that you'll see on this show. Rick, Tad, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Oh, well, thank, thank you. you for having us. All right, Rick. So let's start with this basic question. Before we get to Curious Christine, our producer has lots of questions about what you do. My big picture question is, what is the legend of Bear Gulch, and how does that play into the genesis and the interest, frankly, in your show? Well, the, the legend of, of Bear Gulch, as it's being called, was a, a firsthand uh, story told to my grandfather about a gold discovery that a, a, an old miner found and then covered up because he felt his partner wasn't treating him fairly. The partner grubstaked him, but was taking more than his share, he felt. And so he confided in my grandfather because he liked my grandfather, and uh, they were friends. And then that, that account of that lost vein or buried vein was passed down through the generations, my grandfather to my father and my uncles, and then they passed it on to us. So it's, it's more than a legend to us, but that's a good name for it because all these years we didn't own the properties, but now we do, and we're able to do something with it, even though we, we have a limited budget and uh, we're a little older. We're giving it all we got. So, Tad, what's the hope here? I had imagined that there's, you know, a ton of gold in one of these mountains <laughs> in Montana. You got to go find it. That's difficult business, right? It costs a lot of money. It can be dangerous. What are the next steps for your family here? Yeah, there's an old saying, you mind till you go broke. But <laughs> we, we've got a real opportunity here. And, of course, we're all retired. So that gives us the time to pursue this dream. And this Ole's gold, Ole was the, the prospector that found the original one. Uh, if we can get in, it's a fairly close target. And they're f close to the surface. We have to tunnel into it. We tried to get into it and had to make some changes. But if we get into that and, and the legend is true, then we can use that as uh, seed money for the bigger target, which is deeper down into the mountain, it's a feeder system that fed these veins and fissures of the gold uh, ore that we were that we would find, and so so some success early on could help fund further exploration. And this show on FBN, American Gold: The Legend of Bear Gulch, which airs Wednesdays, as I mentioned, eight to nine p.m., it depicts this whole saga. 
How confident? So I'll ask each of you this before I turn it over to producer Christine, curious Christine, Rick and Tad, on a scale of one to ten. Right, you're sort of in on this. You're taking a risk. It's a bit of a gamble. There's some family folklore here. You think it's based on something that's serious, but you won't know until you truly know. On a scale of one to ten, how confident are you that there is gold in that mountain and you're going to find it, Rick? And then Tad. Well, I'm confident to the the number ten that there is gold there. I'm confident okay. to the number. Seven that we'll find some gold. I'm confident to the number six that we'll actually find uh, the feeder system and where all this gold came from, which should lead us to a higher concentration. Tad, does that sound right uh, to you? That sounds exactly right. And there was a lot of gold mining done in this area before World War II, and <clears throat> so we know they didn't get it all because the World War II shut gold mining down, and so we're. Um, it's like. Ask the the thief why you robbed the bank. That's because that's where the money is. And Mm -hmm. and us, why are you mining there? Well, because that's where the gold mine was. Oh, it's kind of exciting because there's this rumor or this secret that your grandfather heard about. And now it's kind of like a modern day gold rush and it's all being documented on American Gold, the legend of Bear Gulch which is a new addition to the Fox Business Network primetime lineup, Wednesdays at 8 p.m. And producer Christine is a girl from New Jersey who has never been to Montana, has never done anything close to mining. So she is extremely intrigued by the entire enterprise here. She's got some questions. Please bear with her. Christine, take it away. Well, I have to say, I don't know much about gold other than what I see at the mall. So I do have some questions here. Now, first, I am from New Jersey and I'm an Italian. And in our family, sometimes we don't all see the eye to eye and we fight a lot. Now, there's a lot of brothers. How are you guys maintaining your relationship through all of this? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, we're, we're all type A, but we know how to step back a little. And even though we've we've worked in the corporate environment most of our careers, uh, which actually strengthened the type A in us because we all ended up in responsible positions. It's, it still is a joy to work with family members. Uh, we have a few sparks now and then, just like any family, but we generally get it all worked out. And we do run it as a democracy because we all have There's more than one way to solve the problem, and so we kind of have a vote on it. Sometimes you win, and sometimes you don't. Yeah, with five brothers, there's never a tie, right? It's going to be three to two at worst, so I guess you could vote on certain things. All right, Christine, what's next? So um, a camera crew just showed up. How did did that happen? How did you have a huge show come from this? Uh, Well, it really came through my son um, was – doing a snow snow extreme snowmobiles show and this company did a sizzle reel and tried to sell that show and it it just it was a great show but it didn't uh, nobody took it up and <clears throat> the fellow asking you got anything else any other arrows in your quiver and he said well my my dad and his brothers are mining engineers and they own mining property and they have a gold mine and they're retired so and so they uh they approached us and it 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 wasn't an easy sale because, you know, we're happily retired and we have our own routines. And the one thing that enticed us was they said, well, we'll help you out with a little – you put together a mining budget and we'll help you um, 
do some infrastructure work. And we said, uh-huh. well, that, that would appeal to us where we had roads and a contractor <laughs> and we could open up a tunnel. You know, the money's nice, but that's not what, if we were younger, we probably would have been different. But Well, who who do you think the breakout star is going to be? You know, in Destiny's Child, it was Beyonce. Who's your Beyonce? <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy, I'm not touching that one with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> we're we're going to take turns. Well, that's, that's not going to work out so well, I don't think. Diplomatic, diplomatic answer. Uh, my last question, gentlemen, is sort of the danger side of this because y- you hear about mining and it's not without physical risk. I know that there are a lot of safety practices and you're going to be very careful, but talk about that because, as you said, you were, you were happily retired. Do you ever think to yourself, why am I getting into this at any age, let alone at this part of my life? Yeah, we're um, – <clears throat> we are physically able. We've – uh, you know, we <laughs> we had pretty good habits. We don't smoke and, and have never chewed, so our health uh, that way is pretty good. And and we've uh, can still put in a f- pretty good shift, although we're a lot more tired than we used to be. But we are very cognizant of safety because that is the one thing that and maybe a forest fire that could is the high risk in the area, right. especially this year. So we have a lot of safety meetings, and our our younger brother is. He's uh, always kind of the watchdog for us. So we've all been in safety. We all understand, and um, we are very careful because mining can be dangerous, but we know the risks. And when we get into a mine tunnel, if we can identify the bad areas and we know when to timber, put timber above us so we're not ever working under a bad slope or rocks. And so, and we've got air monitors because you can have air with no oxygen in some of these tunnels, that, like the canary in the mine. And so um, we are, we do work very safely. We wear high-vis stuff that shows up in the dark in our mine lights. We wear safety glasses, of course, hard hats and hard-toed boots. And, you know, we try to follow all the rules that we followed when we were working for the industry. I mean, that, of course, makes sense, best practices. And I just find the whole concept here Really interesting. The Dale brothers made a childhood pact that one day they would return home to Montana, buy this land, and go in search of this gold that their grandfather was tipped off existed in this area. And now that adventure is underway, and it is documented on American Gold, the legend of Bear Gulch, Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business Network. Two of those brothers, Rick and Tad Dale, with us from New York at the tail end of our show here today. Gentlemen, really fun. Looking forward to watching the show. Good luck with everything and stay safe. Thank we, you. We will. Thank you. And we invite you to Montana. It is a beautiful state. I've been actually to Montana once. I would love to come back. Maybe not into the mines. We'll send producer Christine into the mines. I I will volunteer her for that here on the air, and I will watch from a safe distance away. That's my personal preference. Guys, thank you very much. And again, American Gold airs tonight, 8 p.m., Fox Business Network. I'll be on Shannon Bream's show in the midnight hour on Fox News Channel. So hopefully you can tune into both of those shows this evening. Back here on the radio at 3 p.m. Eastern tomorrow for The Guy Benson Show. We will talk to you then. Good night.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.